You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Yasmin Abutalib, a health policy reporter here at The Post. With over 6 million deaths confirmed worldwide, parts of Asia and Europe are starting to see an uptick in coronavirus cases that's left many Americans wondering if the same is going to soon happen in the United States. Joining me today to help explain the potential future course of the pandemic is Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, welcome back to Washington Post Live. Thank you very much, Yasmin. Good to be with you. Thanks for joining us. A reminder that we want to hear from our audience, so please tweet your questions at us at the handle at Post Live. Dr. Fauci, I know we've had this conversation several times over the last two plus years. I think the last time you you joined us on Post Live was just as the Omicron surge was beginning. Uh, but I'm wondering, what do you see as the potential for a, a similar surge or a similar uptick in the United States that we're seeing play out in Europe? Well, I would not be surprised at all if we do see somewhat of an uptick, the extent of it and the degree to which it impacts seriousness of disease like hospitalizations and death remains to be seen. I, I don't really see, unless something changes dramatically, that there would be a major surge. The reason why I say I would not be surprised to see an uptick in infections is because the same conditions that are responsible for the upticks that you're seeing in other countries, particularly the UK, which for one reason or other, we seem to follow their pattern by a few weeks lag. And what's going on there are three issues that are very uh, similar to what we see here. Namely, there's a increasing dominance of the BA2 variant, which has a transmission advantage. It's more transmissible. And so when they go head to head with the BA1, sooner or later, the BA2 will become more dominant. Two, there's been a relaxation of restrictions, particularly the requirements for masks in indoor congregate settings. We've seen that in the UK, and we obviously are seeing it here over the last few weeks since the CDC revised their metrics for determining what a particular level of risk is in an area. And third, there's a waning of immunity. So all of those three things which are comparable in the UK to here makes me feel that we'll see an increased uptick. What the UK is not seeing, and that's a good news, is an increase of severity or an increase in the use of intensive care unit beds or an increase in the all-cause mortality, which means that despite the fact that there are cases going up, there does not appear to be any increase in the degree of severity of the outbreak. So hopefully when we do, and I think it will be that we do see an uptick, hopefully it won't be accompanied by an increase in hospitalizations, but it just remains to be seen. And you know, having said that, Yasmin, I wanna put in a pitch that the easiest way that we can prevent that is to continue to get people vaccinated who have not been vaccinated, and particularly those who've been vaccinated who are eligible for a boost, who have not been boosted, to please get yourself boosted because there's no doubt that when you compare hospitalizations among unvaccinated compared to vaccinated and boosted, 
there's an extraordinary degree of difference, much, much more heavily weighted towards the unvaccinated. Well, I want to dive into each of the elements um, you outlined in that answer. But one thing I, I want to ask just quickly before we get into that is, are there any conditions in the U.S. or any reason why the U.S. may not follow a similar pattern that we're seeing in the U.K.? Or do you expect the same thing to play out here? Well, I do think the same thing will play out. There are some differences that could influence the differences in the pattern, Yasmin. First of all, from a standpoint of the percentage of the population that is vaccinated, the UK is better than we are. We have now about 65% of the total population fully vaccinated. Uh, we have about 75 or so percent having received at least one uh, dose. The issue is that we have about 50% of the people who are eligible to be boosted have not yet gotten boosted. So we could do much better in mitigating against any effects of this upsurge. But again, there are so many subtleties and nuances and differences between the countries that in general, the big picture, I think we would see something similar, at least with regard to the increase in cases. The severity and the hospitalization issue, I think, unfortunately, will remain to be seen. So I wanted to just dive into a couple aspects of your, your first answer. You mentioned that in Europe, like here, there has been the rolling back of restrictions, lifting of indoor mask mandates. So, I mean, I obviously the U.S., there, there's been new CDC guidance in the last few weeks that puts most counties in um, a, a category where they can lift indoor mask mandates and still abide by the guidelines. So how big of a vulnerability do you think that is that these mandates are being lifted right now in most of the country? Um, and if that could create a, a sort of bigger pathway for BA2 to cause a, uh, an uptick in the United States in the next few weeks? Well, Yasmin, it's inevitable that when you pull back on restrictive measures, particularly masking indoors, I mean, it's just the dynamics of viral spread that you are going to see more viral spread. I mean, there is virus in the community. There's no doubt about that. Although fortunately for us, and I, and I, and I believe we should emphasize that, that we are still seeing on a daily basis the number of cases, the number of hospitalizations, and the number of deaths continue to come down. That hasn't changed. There is an inkling and a suggestion in some parts of the country that we're seeing a plateau and in some cases an increase. So I believe that one has to accept the inevitability that when you go from a reasonably strict indoor masking uh, recommendation and then you have the overwhelming majority of the country now assuming activities indoors without masks, as long as there's virus circulating in the community, you can be almost certain that you are going to see an uptick. The real question is, what extent of an uptick is it going to be? And we'll just have to wait and see. As I mentioned, we generally lag about three weeks or so behind the UK in the dynamics of what goes on with the outbreak. So we're right now about three weeks or so since the CDC made the modification of their metrics. 
So if we are going to see an uptick, we should start seeing it within the next week or so. You also mentioned that immunity wanes within a few months, and I think now we know it wanes within a few months, whether it's from vaccination or, or from infection. And I think the question a lot of people have is, what does that mean for the, the future of how we deal with this? Does it mean, um, do we have a sense of how frequently we'll need boosters, how, how long the immunity lasts and what's sufficient for different populations? I know it's, it's evolving, but um, I, I'm curious what our, what our best understanding is right now of what that future might look like. Well, I think the honest answer, Yasmin, is that we don't know for certain, but there are certain things that I think are important for people to maybe get a better feel and to understand what likely will happen. When you get protection against infection and mildly symptomatic disease is really quite different from infection against severe disease leading to hospitalization. Because we've seen when you plot the waning of immunity it's a much more profound waning when you measure the efficacy against infection and mildly symptomatic disease, which tends to drop more dramatically and sooner than protection against severe disease that might lead to hospitalization. For example, we know that when you get down to a rather low level, 30, 40 or so percent of protection against infection, you still have, when you look at hospitalization, a high degree. I mean, the latest uh, results from the CDC when they looked at their vision cohort, when they were at four to five months, the degree of protection against hospitalization was 78%, which is not bad. That's really quite good. So the real open question that we don't know definitively the answer to is how long is the durability of protection against severe disease going to last, even when the protection against infection diminishes substantially? So you might have a situation where, and again, it's going to depend on the age of individuals and the status of their immune competence as to how high that degree of protection is and how durable it's going to be. So you ask the question, can we expect that we will need boosts X number of times or how often of an interval we would need? We don't know the answer to that. We've got to be prepared that if it looks like the efficacy against hospitalization goes down, and if it does, does it do it within selective groups? Is it predominantly among the elderly or is it the elderly as well as people with certain underlying conditions. These are things that the data are being accumulated literally as you and I are speaking right now. And the FDA will examine all of that data and make recommendations and emergency use authorizations that go with that. The CDC will ultimately make the recommendations of when and how often one might need a booster and whether that booster can be the booster against the ancestral strain, or will we have to give a booster against a variant-specific strain? We're prepared for all of those things, but all of them have to be on the table, and again, depending upon the data as it evolves. So we do have a Twitter question following up on this, on this answer from Paul Hess, who wants to know, do additional boosters begin to have diminished responses? 
Well, the answer is yes and no. Uh, and let me explain what I mean by that. So there's data now that when you have a diminishing response, at least as measured by antibody, which is proteins in the body that are easy to measure, you just draw blood and you can measure it pretty quickly, that when you get a diminution of level of antibody following the third dose, and you give a fourth dose of an mRNA, namely a second boost, you bring up the level up to where it was originally with the third deuce, dose, but not above and beyond it. So it can reconstitute diminished immunity. Does it continue to incrementally give you more and more? And the answer is unlikely that you would reach a point more likely where instead of continuing to go higher and higher with each boost, that you likely would reconstitute to what already is a maximal level. We can say that with some degree of certainty when you're measuring antibodies. The things that are more subtle and difficult to measure is, for example, memory B cell responses and responses of T cells, CD8 and CD4 positive T cells, which are more directed towards the durability and the breadth of response at the tissue level, such as in the lungs to prevent significant disease in the lungs. That's not easily measurable. And it may be that multiple boosters do incrementally increase that. But when it comes to antibodies, not so much. So we have another Twitter question, a sort of follow-up to that from Sue J who asks, will mRNA vaccines for some reason, science, design, always need boosters more often than other types of vaccines, such as the Tdap type vaccines? Again, a, a very good and relevant question. And we don't know the definitive answer to that. One thing that is true is that when you look at at least the measurable immunity, the mRNA vaccines do not appear to have a degree of durability that some of the other vaccines that we have traditionally used throughout the years, for example, for childhood vaccination programs. So although the mRNA gives you a very high degree of efficacy, and we know that from the extensive clinical trials that were done, we do know that immunity does wane, but importantly, Immunity also wanes from infection. And we know also from our experience with the common cold coronaviruses, in which we know for sure that people can get repetitively infected with the same common cold coronavirus. It may be something peculiar about coronaviruses themselves. So it might be a combination of the vaccine platform, i.e. the mRNA, not having a high degree of durability of response, but it also may be something inherent in the body's response to coronaviruses because of the experience we have with the common cold coronavirus. So, um... Uh, changing course a little bit, I think one of the groups of people who's still particularly worried in this moment are parents with children under five years old who are still too young to get vaccinated. 
So what would your be what would be your advice to these parents right now? Is it okay for them to relax safety precautions a bit? What is the risk to this young unvaccinated group of children right now as you know we're still probably a few weeks away from a, a vaccine being authorized for that age group? Well, a couple of points that Yasmin that are worth mentioning. I mean, obviously all of us, certainly parents of young children, are concerned and anxious that they want to have a safe and effective vaccine for their children under five years old as quickly as possible. The data right now are being accumulated and examined by the FDA. We originally, the original trials, as you remember, were for a two-dose vaccine for children from six months to 24 months and then 24 months to four plus years, up to five. Unfortunately, it was found that that regimen was not adequate enough to give what was felt to be an appropriate or optimal immune response with protection. And so it looks like this almost certainly will be a three-dose vaccine for children in that age cohort. And that's the reason why it's taking so long, as it were. Uh, certainly, the FDA as they always do, want to get it right. So when they approve something, one can be certain that it's effective as well as safe. Hopefully, as you mentioned, we'll know reasonably soon exactly what the right regimen is and what the degree of efficacy is. But the question that you ask is, what can we as a community and particularly parents of children in that age group, what can we do to optimally protect the children? And what one can do is to, to the extent possible, surround the children with people who are vaccinated and hopefully also boosted. And in a situation where children, for example, particularly those who might be immune compromised, you want to protect them even more by making sure that they can wear masks and do other things that might mitigate the possibility that they would get infected. But the real bottom line is surround the children with a veil of protection of those who are vaccinated and boosted up to the time, obviously, when the children themselves can be boosted and vaccinated. And hopefully that will be within a reasonable period of time. I know you've talked a lot about not letting our guard down and being prepared for potential future variants. We asked our audience ahead of this program um, if they were returning to a similar pre-pandemic life, and a majority said they were. So is there a danger in sort of reverting back to life as it was in, in February 2020? And what precautions do you think are appropriate for, for people to be taking right now? Well, I believe it would be prudent and appropriate to follow the CDC guidelines. Namely, if you're in an area that is an area, uh, a green or a yellow area where it does not have a recommendation to be wearing masks, to go about your general business as you normally would, with the caveat that, as the CDC recommended, when they modified the metrics and made recommendations, which now covers most of the country that does not need to be masked indoors, that if things change, that we're flexible enough and uh, prudent enough that if we look like we're seeing a spike that might make things 
more risky for us, that you go back and reassume some of the mitigations that you did before. Now, I hope it doesn't come to that. Everyone wants to get back to normality. Everyone wants to put this behind us. And as I mentioned in an earlier comment, thankfully, we are going in the right direction with regard to all the parameters of infection, hospitalizations, and deaths. So we can assume a degree of normality, and that would be fine. That's what we all want. We've been in this long enough. But we can't claim absolute victory at this point. There's still viral dynamics. We still have a highly transmissible virus among us, particularly the BA2, which has a greater degree of transmissibility than an already highly transmissible BA1, which is the original Omicron. So the advice is proceed with life as normal as you possibly can, but be prepared that we might need to make modifications if things change. So in, in that vein and the CDC's guidelines, you know, you're obviously no stranger to how politicized this pandemic has become. And I'm wondering if you think local leaders will have the, the political will or be willing to reinstate mask mandates or other public health measures if we do see the uptick that I think many people, including you, expect us to see in the coming weeks. Well, to be perfectly candid with you, Yasmin, I, I don't think there's much stomach for people to all of a sudden turn around, even if there is an uptick. I think that the, the desire to continue to go along in a way that is normal, as it were, I think there's going to be a lot of inertia, if not active pushback in people, if it is required to increase or go back to some of the mitigation. I think it's going to be a tough time convincing people to do that. However, having said that, what's most important, for particularly for those who are in a high-risk category, being the elderly, the frail, those with underlying conditions, you would appeal to those people that even though as a community, there may be a lot of reluctance to go back to those kind of mitigations, that if you are yourself in a high-risk group, that you should be prudent and making sure that if the CDC does recommend that, that you follow the recommendations. But that's all hypothesis. We don't know. Hopefully, we will not be put into that position. But if we are, we should be willing to and flexible enough to respond. So we do have another Twitter question, not on boosters this time, um, but we do have a question from uh, Chris Smoll on long COVID. And she asks, Dr. Fauci, what emerging information about long COVID are you finding most compelling and informative? Well, that's a great question. And we all are very concerned about the idea of long COVID. You know, anywhere from five to 30% of people have a per persistence measured in weeks to months of a constellation of signs and symptoms that still in many respects remain puzzling. So we at the NIH, our colleagues at the CDC, are doing a very large study of a number of cohorts observationally looking at factors that might be predictive of whether or not someone is going to get long COVID, what the underlying pathogenic mechanisms might be. And once we find that out, 
what can we do to mitigate against that? You know, there have been some factors that have been associated with long COVID. We don't know whether it's cause effect or just related in a way that might not really uh, be relevant, but we have to pay attention to it. You know, it's the idea of a high degree of a viral load, the idea of underlying diabetes, the idea of reactivation of uh, underlying infections like EBV infections and things like that. Again, nothing solid to indicate that those are pathogenic events that are relevant, but these are things we're keeping an eye out on. One of the things that we have to remember is that this is a real phenomenon. And we've got to make sure that not only do we actively try and determine what these pathogenic mechanisms are, but that we have cohorts that we follow for a long time because we don't know what the long range effects are going to be. And when I say long range, I mean measured in several years. One of the positive things are that the data are pretty clear that if you are vaccinated and you get a breakthrough infection, you have less of a risk of getting long COVID than if you are infected not having been vaccinated, which is again, yet again, another argument for why it's so important for us to get vaccinated and when vaccinated to get boosted. So in our last couple minutes, I wanna ask uh, just a couple questions sort of looking ahead. And I think one question that a lot of people would be curious to hear your answer to is, is there a, a moment or a lesson that has really stuck out to you from this pandemic or is there a defining moment uh, or lesson of the pandemic for you so far? Well, there are a couple, Yasmin. I, I, one in a very uh, positive way is what I have been talking about for a very long period of time, long anti-dating COVID-19, is the importance of the investment in biomedical research, particularly in the area of fundamental understanding of viral, viral diseases, as well as the platform technologies and immunity design for vaccines. Because if we had not had that multi-multi-year investment, we would not have been able to respond so quickly and so successfully with safe and effective vaccines that have already saved millions of lives. So one lesson is continue as we get this behind us and look forward to preparedness for the next pandemic, which inevitably will occur despite the fact that we don't know when, but it will occur to continue the investment in biomedical research. The other issue is Keep an open mind about this. Pandemics occur and they are different. COVID-19 has shown us how over the months from the first recognition of this outbreak, how it's evolved and how our views changed regarding the evolution and the accumulation of knowledge from understanding its ability to so effectively spread from person to person for the fact that aerosol is a very important modality of spread, not just droplets, which has a lot to do with wearing masks and why it's so important to wear a high quality mask. The other thing that was striking and really quite unique was the fact that 
such a large proportion, between 50 and 60% of all the transmissions occurred from someone who had no symptoms, who either never would have developed symptoms or was in the pre-symptomatic phase. That's very different from most any other respiratory illness, which may have a small percentage transmitting prior to symptoms, but not the large proportion of transmission occurring in an asymptomatic state. So open-mindedness is a lesson we have to remember and a profound and deep commitment to basic and clinical research to help us develop the next round of countermeasures, not only for this outbreak, but for future outbreaks. And we've got about one minute left. So I want to ask, are there lessons that you fear we are not learning to help inform our responses, our continued response to this pandemic and to future health crises? Well, there is a lesson that I do hope um, we don't miss. And that is that we need to continue to make investments with resources to get monoclonal antibodies, to get drugs, to get the booster shots that we're gonna need. And that's the reason why we're very concerned that with the budget bills, the omnibus bills that have come through, that there has been essentially no additional money for COVID-19, which is really extraordinary, particularly given what we've been through. And that's the reason why the Congress, which has been very generous to us in the past, no doubt, about that, that please don't slip and decide we're done with the strong support of resources for COVID because COVID is not done with us. So we've got to continue to support the things that will continue to get us the interventions and that would continue to prepare us for the next challenge. Well, Dr. Fauci, we're unfortunately out of time, but thank you so much for joining us again at Washington Post Live for another timely conversation. Thank you very much, Yasmin. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.